0: This audio program is a Ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to ClearNotefellowship.org. Why are we uneasy about liturgy? Okay, we might be fascinated with it, we might be interested in it, but. And there's a lot of women interested in it. It's just amazing to me. Why are we uncomfortable with it? Well, I think in part it's because we don't understand what it is. A couple of things that we attribute to liturgy or ways we interpret it is that we tend to think of liturgy as a a cultural accoutrement, like something that... If you're the kind of person that likes that sort of thing, well, I guess that's the sort of thing that you like. <laughs> like, we, we relegate it to the sphere of personal preference. If you were in the earlier session on the Sabbath, and we remember the guy that was talking about the pathways to God. There, uh, I can't remember the guy's name offhand. I don't have my notes here. What was his name? Gary Thomas. Gary Thomas. He wrote a book called... Sacred Pathways. Sacred Pathways, and it's about how you have to find your... God made you a, a unique creature and made you with certain passions and interests way... Uh, he gave you a kind of a communion with God nature that's unique and individual, and you have to, the work of your life is to find that pathway that He's laid out for you and to commune with God through it. And the traditionalist or... It is one of those pathways. If you're the kind of person that likes that sort of thing, then I guess that's the sort of thing that you like. Whatever floats your boat. Whatever floats your boat. <laughs> Liturgy is something that floats some people's boat, like Father Bill Mauser. That's what we think. And while we, we, we were usually will we'll give room for Father Bill Mauser to exist in the world, but we're not going to be a part of it. That's not our thing. More negatively though, I think we associate liturgy with lifeless, spiritualless, excessively ceremonial, external religion. People who use words like liturgy, we think must of necessity be overly focused on external things, rites and ceremonies at the expense of true and vital heart religion. That liturgy and vital religion cannot go together. They're opposed to one another. They're an antithesis. Liturgy, we think, is what you turn to when you don't have the fullness of the Spirit at work in your midst. And any church that has the Spirit is doomed to lose his favor by turning to liturgy. We're suspicious of liturgy because we think it is a work of the flesh. Something that is opposed to the work of the Spirit, something even that, given too much room, you know, like a dandelion, give it an inch, it'll take a yard, will is certain to grieve him. That we, something you have to watch carefully, guard against, use sparingly. Now, sadly, both of these synopsis are true, many times. You'll find many examples where these are manifested. Liturgy can be a way that we signal superior taste. We can can show the bracket, the income bracket we belong in by the elevation of our liturgy. It's like like the tax code. (laughs) There's There's brackets to liturgy the low income bracket and the, the 1% bracket. It can also be a way, this is important to realize, liturgy, so it's a way we can signal our superior taste, it's also a way we can signal our superior indifference to matters of taste. So low can be proud of low. Every bit as much as high can be proud of high. Because we're sinners, and wherever we go, we sin. We can be proud of anything. Pride knows no bounds. Reverse snobbery, that's what that's called. Reverse snobbery. And liturgy is often a crutch, a way we protect ourselves from the leading and influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to contend... And mind you, I largely don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> when it comes to liturgy. Liturgy is a huge concept. It has a huge history to it. it. goes back to the beginning of the church, as far back as you can look in church history, which usually stops uh, sometime after the closing of the biblical canon and the year, the, the, the second, th- third century. There's like a gap in there where it's hard, murky waters, not much to glean. But once you can start learning things from church history, you see that uh, there are rites and ceremonies and orders of worship uh, um, all throughout church history. I'm going to contend that What I just said, uh, the way we think of liturgy, these are abuses of liturgy, abuses of it. They're not native conditions that are inseparably tied to it, not inherent to liturgy. Liturgy is not doomed to fail. It's actually a theological imperative. And it's a well-established theological principle That an abuse does not negate a use. So, alcohol can be abused, does not mean it's against God's will that it ever be used. God has given us all things richly to enjoy liturgy and alcohol. (laughs) They can both be abused, and we must not abuse them. It's sin. So I don't believe that liturgy is to be blamed for its many abuses any more than the waters of baptism are to be blamed for sacramentalism, any more than the Great Commission is to be blamed for Campus Crusade, okay? We cannot get on in the church without liturgy, and I know I keep using this word, and we have not yet defined what it means. We're getting there. We can't get on in the church without liturgy. Apart from liturgy, our worship would be nothing but disordered confusion. You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14? All things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And he's talking about in the worship. When you get together, each one of you has a psalm and a, and, a, and a prophecy and so on. Let these things be done in an orderly, a proper way otherwise the, he says the argument of that passage is they'll just confusion will reign people will not be cut to the quick like they need to be they will not understand unbelievers will come in and say are you mad it will be without liturgy our worship would be the equivalent of the last verse of judges I think it's the very last verse of judges every man did what was right in his own eyes liturgy is what orders our life together So, if I'm right, then liturgy is very important. If confusion is the alternative, then liturgy is important. We have to have order in the church. And so, if it's important, then it's something that we must work to understand. So, what is liturgy? What is liturgy? Well, a basic definition that you can find is that liturgy is a composite Greek word that means simply public work or public service, public duty. Thus, in that sense, liturgy is a word referring to those actions that Christians perform together when they assemble for worship. Liturgy refers to the actions that we perform together, the things we do when, as a part of our worship, our service of the Lord. So in this sense, though, this is why... It's only somewhat helpful as a definition. In this sense, every church is liturgical. Every church has its order, its form. And it might be more or less predetermined. It might be more or less participatory. Might be weighted more in the favor of the congregation doing the work together by reading something, reading through a liturgy it might be more or less um, complex. It might be published in a book. It might be published on a screen. It might be highly structured. It might sort of meander along. It might be choose your own adventure. You know those books? Regardless, every church, in this general sense of the word liturgy, has its liturgy, a pattern. And it turns out that they're all pretty predictable. Even those ones which seem to be free, spontaneous, informal. And so let me give you a couple examples of this. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, a rural Southern Baptist church, um, at a crossroad. So by rural, I mean rural. Uh, probably more than five miles from any town. It's called Eudora. And it was technically a town because there was a post office in the gas station at the crossroads. <laughs> the gas station and the church and a few houses was Eudora. It was on the way to the lake. My grandfather was the pastor. In many ways, I, I love it, loved it. I have fond memories of life there. But we did uh, many things that I've come now to see were wrong. To do and worship, uh, we said the pledge of allegiance. Uh. On on like um, what are those those days? Like the Eagle Scouts would come. There's like a day for this every year. What is it called, Chris? I don't know. Is it called Flag Day? Yeah, I don't know but they came every year. <laughs> and we said the Pledge of Allegiance. Oh, and on um, around July 4th, we did too. We had and Veterans Day. Any opportunity to say the Pledge of Allegiance, <laughs> we took it. We sang happy birthday to everyone who had had a birthday that week. They were published in the bulletin, and we sang. They all stood, and we sang happy birthday to them. And here's the way liturgically, I, I, there's this one phrase that was asked Nearly every service that perfectly describes the feel. Here's the question. You might not understand it, but it was asked from the pulpit by the worship leader. He was just a a family member who will go unnamed. (laughs) (laughs) Did anybody bring a tape? You heard that, Chris? Anybody heard that question asked in, in worship? Did anybody bring? You have, David? Did anybody bring a tape? Well, what does it mean? Did you did anybody come prepared to sing a solo backed by a cassette accompaniment? And inevitably, more than 50% of the time, what would ensue would be an excruciating few minutes of miss, having a miscued tape or user error back at the soundboard. And almost always also and or a uh, an apology, a, a disclaimer about the health, the vocal health of the performer. <laughs> <laughs> Did anybody bring a tape? <laughs> and I've also played, as a, I'm a musician, I uh, train as a violinist, and um, am very thankful for that church in, in Eudora for making me learn the joy of serving I did not see it as a joy at the time, but I think instilled in me um, something that uh, experiences and knowledge that the Lord used later in His time. And that is that they made me play the violin along with worship. And I was really snotty about the violin. I would not learn to fiddle, which would have made all of my grandparents Very happy, and I would not do it. I was too proud for that. And I was also too proud to play in church, although I could not get out of that one. And it became, still today, if I go home, it's greatly disappointing if I did not bring my violin. They made me play along in worship. That's how I learned to play by ear. We had this wonderful pianist named Barbara Swadley. And just amazing. Just dun, 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 dun. any key, she just opened up the songbook and, and transposed in any key, all in that Southern Gospel <laughs> piano style. <laughs> but I also, my uncles being pastors in other churches in, of other flavors, other pathways, <laughs> a couple of them more charismatic, I had opportunity to play in, with, uh, like, uh, ca- in Calvary Chapel churches, one in particular in Springfield, Missouri. And I learned there that it' as far as i I have experienced that was the freest worship i've ever been, but I got to be behind the curtain. I was at the rehearsal, and I know that it was not it's not as free as it seems, not nearly it's actually very predictable. My sister, if she were here. She took lessons from an assembly. In Assemblies of God International Headquarters is in Springfield, Missouri. And my sister had piano lessons for a while from a pianist at the, the leading church in Springfield, the AG church there. And she was teaching her, I think, Shout to the Lord, or something, one of those songs that was popular at the time. And, then she, and she said, and we modulate here. And that really brings the spirit. Direct quotes. do they know what modulate modulate means we go up a key up a step so if you're playing in G I don't know what shout the Lord's in but is it in D or G one of those two and at a certain point you go up a whole step and that really brings the spirit meaning that is the point when all of the hands go up if there have been any stragglers they, they they all join in now they know to, they've been cued to by the music. And so, even in charismatic worship, which prides itself in being incredibly free, is precisely orchestrated and intentional, carefully rehearsed to appear spontaneous. But as I said, acknowledging that every church is liturgical is not ultimately that helpful. We need a way of evaluating liturgies. If, if everybody has a liturgy, we haven't said anything. We need a way of establishing some critique, some measure of, of, of a liturgy, of a good one and a bad one. What makes it good and what makes it bad? So as we look for one of these, here's the problem we face, okay? One of the problems is that, as Luther was fond of saying, Martin Luther, the New Testament contains no new Leviticus. The New Testament contains no new Leviticus. Leviticus is the book in the Old Testament that is a highly detailed, intensely legal, liturgical book. So it's a liturgical manual or guide full of laws that carefully govern the how man approaches God in worship. It's like here and here and you do this and you cut this and you, these parts go here and in exactly this fashion, in this manner, in this way, at this time, under these circumstances, it is incredibly detailed. And as Martin Luther pointed out rightly, The New Testament does not have a new Leviticus. There's no alternative in the New Testament that details for us what our worship is to be like. So that's a challenge. The liturgical rule of Leviticus was brought to an end by the death of Jesus Christ. So there was a sacrificial system that was replaced by a sacrifice. There was an altar that was replaced by an altar. There was a tabernacle and a temple that was replaced by the true tabernacle and the true temple, which is Jesus Christ himself. And at the point of his death, the, the, the curtain of the veil in the temple, was, which was a hefty, impressive thing, was torn in two from top to bottom, it says, as by the hand of God. To demonstrate to all of us that there is no new Leviticus. <laughs> that, it, that Jesus Christ has fulfilled it. So that's a, that's a challenge because the church in the Old Testament had a, a manual to follow. Very strict guidelines and we don't have an equivalent in the New Testament. What do we do? Where do we turn? Well, in the first session I talked about the means of grace that are laid out for us in Acts 2.42. Um, this is the, the day of Pentecost when thousands heard the, the good news of the gospel preached to them and the Holy Spirit was present in power and they were converted, they were baptized and it says they, they devoted themselves continually to a number of things and these are what we refer to as the means of grace referred to them to, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship the breaking of bread which we understand to be communion and to prayer or more perfect understanding of that word is the prayers these were corporate devotions that they gave themselves to continually and it wasn't, they didn't just have, uh, it's arguable whether they immediately knew that these were to be fulfilled or experienced or shared in on the, on the Lord's Day and Sabbath or not. Um, it seems to indicate that this was a kind of day-by-day <laughs> experience, at least at first. But I don't know where I was going to go with that. Totally lost my train of thought. Anyway, they're not Leviticus. We don't have a Leviticus. So. They were figuring, they were figuring it, out. it out. That's right. But are these, these are the devotions of the church. These are the devotions. These are the means of grace. But is this the new Leviticus? Is this the liturgy actually I think not these are the elements the building blocks which liturgy interacts with and makes use of and adds meaning to so then what is liturgy these are the building blocks of worship liturgy is what orders those blocks and gives them meaning here's a definition That's been helpful to me. I don't think it's a perfect definition. It's in process. But it's been helpful to me. Liturgy is best understood as the putting of God's work to work. God's word to work. Putting God's word to work in making the means of grace meaningful. Putting God's word to work. Making the means of grace meaningful. Now, what uh, J.I. Packer has said is, Liturgy is the Bible orchestrated for worship. It's the same thing that I just said, basically. Liturgy is the Bible orchestrated for worship. But the, I think uh, the logical question that follows from that is, what? The means of grace aren't meaningful by themselves? No. Bear with me, but ask yourself these questions. What is preaching without the Word? What is preaching without the Word? The Bible. Well, it's not preaching. It's it's easy. This is kind of the way in. This is a dumb, obvious thing. But it's worth asking, what is preaching without God's Word? God's Word is what makes preaching meaningful. Right? No duh a truism but it gets less true or less truistic as we go along what is prayer without the word what is singing without the word that one's explicit in scripture we know let the word of Christ dwell in you richly <laughs> Teaching and admonishing one another with songs and hymns and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing is not Christian. It's not meaningful, without God's word. What is fellowship without God's word? Well, it's talking about the sports game and and the weather. It's not Christian fellowship without God's Word. God's Word is what makes fellowship Christian and meaningful, a means of grace. When when the Word of Christ dwells in us richly and we teach and admonish one another with words and not with psalms, you know? What are the sacraments without the Word? Here's what Calvin says. I think there are probably better quotes about this from Calvin, but this is in a a pinch. This is the only one I could turn up. It is known that from the very beginning of the world, whenever God offered any sign to the holy patriarchs, it was inseparably attached to doctrine. Whenever he offered a sign, a seal of his covenant, it was inseparably attached to truth that he had also revealed. It wasn't... Circumcision, Abraham, circumcise. <laughs> this shall be the sign unto you that you belong to me and I'm bound to you. This is the sign of the covenant. And that has doctrine that God reveals to Abram. What this means, the word, the, the thing. The sacrament, the sign, the ordinance has no meaning of itself. It derives its meaning from the word. That's why the apostles' teaching is first in the list of the devotions. It's the thing from which all the others flow. It's the thing that gives meaning to all of their work and worship. He goes on, Calvin does. It was inseparably attached to doctrine. The sign was always attached to doctrine without which our senses would gaze bewildered on an unmeaning object." The Lord's Supper has no meaning apart from God's Word teaching us the meaning, encouraging our faith through the sign. Therefore, when we hear mention, Calvin says, made of the sacramental Word, let us understand the promise which promised aloud by the minister, leads the people by the hand, so that to which the sign tends and directs us. So this, the ministry, Calvin's talking about the role of your minister in administering to you the sacraments, that he remind you of the promises, that the doctrines that attend the sacraments so that you'll be led by the hand to take hold of them and experience them, that they will have meaning. Here's what St. Augustine said. Let the word be added to the element, whatever it is, and it will become a sacrament. That Calvin taught that you can't have, uh, they don't work ex opere. how does it go? It's ex opera. operae. Op- operado they don't and what's the translation that it does it's like it works independently it's there there's bread and there's wine they've been consecrated and you put that in your mouth and you drink it and it doesn't matter what you're thinking at the time or whatever it just it does its job it's salvific in and of itself and Calvin taught, no, that's what Rome teaches, and it's, it's sacrilege, it's a lie. It has meaning only because the Word of God is around it, giving it meaning. It incur- the God's Word is brought to bear at the time that the sacrament is administered, and your faith is encouraged. And by faith, you receive the promises that are encompassed, enclosed in the sign. Without God's word, you can't have faith, and the thing is just, what did Calvin say? An unmeaning object. So I wanna give you an example. This is about the time in the talk where I'm going off the reservation or have no plan. (laughs) So, (laughs) it's God's plan. Here's just a a taste of how, I've adapted this a little bit, but it's mostly just a, a historical liturgy for baptism. Now, have you all been to a baptism that just kind of happened? It was just kind of cute. We just baptized. And it was... Hello, little girl, tell us about your faith. Now, baptism is in Trinitarian, and that's fine. But conjure up in your mind those images, those experiences that most of us have had. And now listen to this. You're in the company of God's people, and the minister stands before you and says, calls you forward and says, hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone wishes to come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Now those are the opening sentences. That's just, it, just to orient us to God's promises in Jesus Christ. What the, the call of discipleship. That's what baptism is, an entrance into the, the life of a disciple. And so we clearly hear at the beginning God calling us, uh, got what God's word says about that, what Jesus has said clearly. If you want to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. Dearly beloved, Isn't that amazing? Dearly beloved, one of the things that liturgy is so good. Uh, For is that it requires us to, to do things we're not inclined to say things we're not inclined to say. Somebody in a room, in one of their better moments, required me to say something I'm not inclined to say about you. If you come to be baptized, dearly beloved, that amazing. I'm so thankful that someone. That's, that's a perfectly appropriate scriptural expression term of endearment that has theological significance behind it dearly beloved beloved of god and beloved of all true believers listen to the words of the institution of the holy sacrament of baptism jesus said to his disciples all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These are the words of institution. Jesus, when he, when he gave baptism to the church as a sign of entrance into the new covenant, The the Apostle Peter also, on the day of Pentecost, it says, called upon the people, saying, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Now here's an exhortation. The minister turns to the candidate for baptism and says, Doubt not, therefore. But earnestly believe that truly repenting and coming unto him by faith, he will number you among his people and that this baptism with water in his name shall be unto you the sign and seal of the washing away of your sins, your union with Christ, your regeneration by his Holy Spirit and your engagement to be the Lord's. Doubt not, but earnestly believe that all that God has said about this act will be true for you dearly beloved another one you are now faithfully on your part in the presence of God and of this congregation to answer the following questions and these are vows that the candidate for baptism makes before the Lord at the at the point of entrance into the body of Christ they make vows and that's what a sacrament is. It's like an oath. That's what the word sacrament derives from, an oath that military officers would make in, as they engaged in the service. And so when we, when we receive baptism, we are in being engaged. We are engaging ourselves to be the Lord's. Make disciples, baptizing them and the questions. And then another very important thing, a prayer of consecration. I think this is an essential part of of helping, of of bringing, well, I don't know how to put it, but I love prayers of consecration in the sacraments. Listen to this. Almighty and everlasting God, whose blessed Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, has ordained this holy sacrament, mercifully look upon us, we ask you, who are met together in his name, and ratify in heaven that which by his appointment we do upon the earth. Set apart this water from a common to a sacred use to which it is appointed, and grant that your servant, now to be baptized with it, may receive the fullness of your grace, and ever remain in the number of your faithful people, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Then they proceed to baptize the candidate in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then listen to this, another prayer after they come up out of the water. Almighty and eternal God, strengthen this, your servant, we ask you, with the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, and daily increase in him your manifold gifts of grace, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and keep him in your mercy unto life eternal through Jesus. What would prayer be without the word? Did you hear the Bible? (laughs) It's just the Bible. It's just asking God that his words would be true, reminding him of the things he said and asking that he would make them come to pass. It's, It's not to be taken for granted that the waters of baptism will be significant in any way by themselves. It's not even enough to have said, reminded us all that the promises are there to be taken hold of. We must also pray that God would be true to His promises. This is part of how God's Word is brought to bear to make the means of grace meaningful. So that prayer goes on. It's wonderful. But then, listen to this. For as he, Now the minister speaks to the candidate who's been baptized. "...for as much as you have made confession of your faith... I do now, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great head of the church, admit you to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and to the fellowship of Christ's church. And a closing charge, and now as a member of Christ's church, go forth into the world in peace. Be of good courage. Hold fast that which is good. Render to no man evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Heal the afflicted. Honor all men. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. And a final blessing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's one way. We don't have a new Leviticus. that These words didn't come expressly in the, book, you know, in, the, in the book of New Leviticus <laughs> these aren't from the pages of New Leviticus but in the, in the fullness of the Spirit the Spirit wrote and inspired the words of the Word and with the wisdom and the mind of Christ we're free to have liturgy <laughs> we're free to pr- make God's Word profitable to us so that the means of grace will have meaning. How has the Bible been orchestrated for worship in the past? Well, to ask that question, I have to, I think I have to address an, uh, uh, an obvious, not something we'll ever vocalize, but something I think we, we think we look down on the past. We do not think, we do not value the previous ages of the church. We, in a, in a, for any number of reasons, maybe you know them better than I do, um, think of ourselves, this generation, whichever is the one we're a part of, as the, the first ones on the scene, the first ones that mattered, the first ones who ever had a thought. But it can't be further from the truth. Um, and you can't, you'll never know that until you, you, you say to yourself, well, here's a good illustration uh, that um, G.K. Chesterton used. Have you ever heard his fence analogy? Uh, there's two types of reformers, Chesterton said. The, the, they're walking along and they, they encounter a fence, and the first type of reformer says, what's a fence doing here? Let's get rid of it. And the second type of reformer, which is the wiser one, the one Chesterton is... Um, is uh, wanting us to be, he says, no, 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 no. You go away and study why the fence was put there in the first place and when you can come back and tell me why this fence is here, then we can start to talk about whether we should take it down or not. That's Chesterton's fence analogy. Two types of reformers. We should be that second type of reformer. Our assumption should be. It's uncharitable to our, our fathers in the faith, to just assume that we know better than them. How unbiblical <laughs> to think that way as a child in relation to your parents, right? We understand it in our homes, but we don't embrace it in history. We have fathers in the faith that have gone before us, and they're better. They are our betters. how has the Bible been orchestrated for worship in the past? Well, as I said, Luther was fond of reminding us that the New Testament does not provide a new Leviticus to defend, he he would say this, he was fond of saying that, to defend his decision not to drastically alter the Roman Catholic service that the German people were used to. So, it cuts both ways. You can say that the Bible has no New Leviticus. Therefore, we're able to do whatever seems good to us to do, is the, is the, the conclusion, the spin Luther put on it. The, it's, qu- it's called in, in worship, in, uh, the normative principle of worship, that we are allowed to do whatever the scripture does not expressly forbid us to do. And by that he means in the New Testament. So whatever the New Testament does not expressly forbid us to do, we're allowed to do in worship. And for, that, for Luther, that meant keeping um, ceremonial garb, the idea of a, a separated priesthood, celibacy, and um, men who are a different class in the church. Um, use of incense, the keeping of the altar, he did get rid of some of the more uh, sacramental abuses at the heart of the the, the Lord's Supper, the the, uh, the Mass. He did remove some of the more sacramental language, and he did translate it into German for the the country churches. Right, Phil? So that was an improvement. There are changes that he made, but he kept most of it intact, and in, in, including images. Icons, statues. And so he was using that phrase, the New Testament does not provide a new Leviticus in order to protect or to keep those things. Calvin and Martin Bucer and the Swiss reformers, they argued it in a different way. In contrast with Luther, they said as, as incensed as they were by the gross idolatries of Roman pomp, They set about to radically transform the worship service according to the principle that God forbids in worship anything that he does not expressly command. This is what we call the regulative principle of worship. That God regulates worship in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. That he takes worship seriously. That anything that deviates from his word by express command, anything that we add to worship that God has not expressly commanded be there, is idolatry, and it should be gotten rid of. Now, huge fights over these two viewpoints have raged in the church, and even today are raging, whether you know it or not. This is a, These are a big deal, and there are even variations within these camps, right? I think when you look carefully at what Calvin and especially his predecessor, who he learned um, about worship from Martin Bucer, I think what you learn is that it, it, it's not quite accurate to say whatever God doesn't expressly command is forbidden. It's it's really it's a more nuanced position than that. It's that. Whatever is not expressly commanded or by good and necessary inference, you know, commanded. There's more ways of commanding than just express command. <laughs> There's implications that have to be studied and, and brought to bear. And so that's a, that's a very different thing than just saying, oh, it's not there, so it's idolatry. But anyway, there are huge fights. Where do I come down? Where do we come down as your pastors and elders? Well, we're with Calvin. If if you, I think it's much safer, much more honoring to Scripture, much more, um, well, whatever, all those things, to say that the Bible governs worship. Um, and I know it sort of, that's what Luther's saying, but there's a difference. How would you say it? kind of running out of steam here. Well, I think, I think Luther adds the traditions of men, or allows for them, yeah. mm-hmm. as an equal to from the, from the running down. I think the regulative principle, rightly understood in the, in the Martin Busser way, is the principle to have. Whatever we do in worship should have a solid biblical reason, command, whether that be an express or an implicit command. God's Word. God's Word. This is the genius of the Calvinistic brand of reform. God's Word, through and through. So we side with Calvin, but there's we acknowledge that there's a, there is a tight, rigid, legalistic way of implementing this, which we don't want. We don't want to be um, unable to think for ourselves. We don't want to be able to continually revisit Scripture <laughs> afresh with new eyes and, and say, well, what really is there? Uh, and so fixated on what a partic- uh, the, the English Puritans in a particular section of history told us is there. God's word is above the creeds and confessions. They're sub- subsidiary documents. Um, so what are the, how are the ways, this is, sorry, I'm getting off the, the point. Well, what are the ways in which the Bible has been orchestrated for worship? Well, the Lutheran tradition had, the Roman Catholic mass changed somewhat, put into German and removed some of the sacramental language. How are we doing on time? Five minutes? Okay. The Anglican church took after the Lutheran tradition, although they they had Calvinistic doctrine, they had Lutheran practice. Calvinistic doctrine, Lutheran worship, by and large. So they allowed for um, clerical garments robes priestly robes in worship they allowed for an altar they allowed for all sorts of things that were according to the Lutheran tradition and they had this was their solution the book of common prayer which um, I'm getting tired my brain's not working what's the guy's name yeah Thomas Cranmer wrote and it's full of wonderful prayers, really wonderful prayers. I wish I had, I could not find the liturgy book. It's gone missing. Did you know that? Our liturgy book has gone missing from the office. I don't know where it is. We better find that before tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but the burial service, the, the, the wedding liturgy, these are things that we've, especially with the, the wedding service, we have, um, we have required ourselves to use. Um, for a number of reasons, but with the wedding service especially because it makes us, like dearly beloved, <laughs> words we would not be inclined to say, it makes us say in the vows, the woman says, I will obey my husband. And driving a liturgical nail and the stake in the ground is is safe a good way of protecting the truth the purity of the church purity of doctrine the truth so they they published their worship and it's it's word for word you can you open up to the right page and there you see that there are um, tabs here different colors and you you mark the sections of the book that you're going to be using in that day's worship and this is unfortunately a really bad modern edition it's the best I had on hand but there are wonderful wonderful prayers in here and so we from time to time use prayers and services from this book we don't use the book so you don't know we're doing it but we have drawn from this it's a wonderful resource the song that the choir sings uh, seems about every year by Henry Purcell uh, what is it If you love me, no, it's on any pains of death. Nobody can remember. Anyway, we got to move on. We we also have John Knox's liturgy, which is as good as having John Calvin's liturgy, because he sent a copy to John Calvin and had him. Um, review it, and Calvin said, "There's there may be a few things in here I'd quibble with, but this is great." And so it has John Calvin's stamp of approval, and um, whew. we are. Eh, I'm sorry, I'm really tired. <laughs> the um, our service is basically the Calvinistic service, the Reformed tradition, with some additions here and there from other traditions. So we, what we follow week in, week out, is um, just this like boringly normal in the history of the church for the last four or 500 years. And really, in a way, it's always been the form of worship. It's just, it's been added to and added to and things have been piled on to it and Calvin and the, reformer, the, the Swiss reformers tried to get rid of all of the additions so that we had the word of God through and through speaking to us um, we have to stop do you have any questions things I could that weren't clear something I could speak to any questions yes Liturgy isn't a four-letter word. And uh, is it William Shishko wrote a, a pretty decent e on that in the OPC? His preface, we need to worship with understanding. And if your congregation knows why you're doing what you're doing, then it shouldn't be boring, right? Right. One of the challenges with liturgy, and this is maybe where we'll stop is to read from a book today in a service is people can't enter into it and relate like they used to be able to. And this is a real challenge. TV and all kinds of other forces have been brought to bear to give us a false sense of intimacy. Actors recite lines for us as if it's like easy to to live your life in the West Wing. An episode of The West Wing, you know, where people are just witty and they're like on it and they, you know, they're just ama- the masters of language and of rhetoric and of wit. <laughs> and that when, when a TV preacher is preaching to you uh, through your t- television, it's like he's right there in your living room. You know, Ch- Charles Stanley, Charles Stanley, is that his name? He's like, he's right there in your living room. You know, and so... Yeah, and even the Bibles are dramatized. And so to, um, to, we're at a great disadvantage because, on the one hand, none of us have the, very few of us have the rhetorical skills or the biblical knowledge to be able to improvise liturgy on the spot. And yet none of our congregants have any patience for us reading it to them. So that's why I, in part, this is what the Westminster Directory for Public Worship, which was, I believe, the first document that the Westminster Assembly uh, worked on and and published, though it's not like officially adopted in the same way as the the Confession of Faith and the Catechisms, Um, but it, unlike the Book of Common Prayer they give in prose form instructions, advice of what you should do in the worship, how you administrate the sacraments. And they get, instead of giving a, a liturgy an, uh, words, they'll say, here are the important things to communicate to your people at the point of, it, of serving the Lord's Supper. Like five things that you just really must cover in order to have rightly administered the sacrament. And so... I uh, bear with me. I think that at the heart of the question is, what's the best way to protect the vitality of the church? If you have a whole country full of churches and par- a parish system, one way you can protect the vitality and the purity and the accuracy of worship is by publishing a book and saying, the book must be used and followed. And if you can't preach, there's 13 sermons in here for you to preach from. That'll give you variety. (laughs) You can just read them. And if you have, if the ministry is in a bad state, this is one solution. The Puritans, though, were not satisfied with that solution. And I think they're right to not be satisfied with it. Doesn't mean that there's not value to a book like this. But it is verily tempting to lean on it too heavily and to not insist that the men be quality men. And the Puritans were insistent that the men be godly men and that they be able to pray and that they be able to speak God's word to the people. And so they gave them advice, direction, but did not want them restrained or did not want to give them something that would inhibit them or that ultimately would lead to too much reliance upon the the, the words and guidance of man. That's. This is, but having said that, those men are way more committed to liturgy than you are. <laughs> so you're really sympathetic to me saying that. But what I told, have told my students um, in the pastor's college this last year is that the, the, the history of the church getting on board with the history of the church or the, looking at the history of worship is going to make you very uncomfortable because you're going to realize the degree to which it's a history of rites and ceremonies all the way through up until our day and so I guess what I would say is on the one hand this is the way, liturgy is the way, the mechanism by which God's Word is brought to bear to make the means of grace meaningful to you. So embrace it and appreciate it. But yes, ultimately what we need is the Word of God in our hearts, in our mouths, in our minds, where we're able to speak and, and use it without leaning too heavily on crutches, lest we lose it from our hearts that makes sense? Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a tension that we have to live in with liturgy. Liturgy is essentially a good thing, and it's a dangerous thing. But it is a, a theological imperative. Thanks for listening, and uh, let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray for this last remaining sermon that we are to sit under. We thank you for it, and I pray, Lord, that you'd give us... Um, strength, attentiveness, alertness, watchfulness as we um, come to it, that you, Lord, would help us to stay awake and to receive the blessings that you have for us in your word. Would you bless David Bailey as he's going to preach to us? Give him much conviction in the fullness of your spirit. Make the word come forth in power. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.